Waiting in the hallway for further instructions, you can feel your heart race. First day in nerves, you thought. A man in a white coat appears, handing you a stack of files and motions you to follow. As you both walk, the man in the coat spoke, laying out your orders. As you got to the door of the patient's room, the man stopped. He cleared his throat and said, One more thing, the patient doesn't know why he is here and for the sake of the study he's never to know or be treated for what is on the file. Puzzled you look down at the file, the word syphilis catches your eye. Shocked you looked up at the man and he places his hand on your shoulder and repeats, it benefits the study, understood? Knowing you need a job, you force a silent nod and open the door. This was the Tuskegee syphilis study, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Beginning in 1932, when there was no known treatment for syphilis, 600 African-American men in McCann County were promised free medical care if they took part in a medical project. The study's aim was to follow the full progression of the syphilis disease, although the men wouldn't be told this. The 600 African-American men to take part were mainly sharecroppers, most of whom never visited a doctor up until then. When they arrived, those 600 men were told they were being treated for bad blood, a common term for many illnesses. Of the participants, 399 had syphilis and 201 were a control group free of the disease but they were all told they had bad blood, which required treatment. It all started when the US Health Service Syphilis Study at Tuskegee began a six-month descriptive epidemiology study of the range of pathology associated with syphilis in Macon County. The researchers involved with the study reasoned it all away as to them they were not harming the individual because they weren't given treatment. At the time, it was very much thought the effects of syphilis was race-based. The doctor said African-American men, cardiovascular system was affected, not the central nervous system. 600 poor African-American sharecroppers were enrolled to the study. 399 had latent syphilis and 201 weren't infected. The PHS or Public Health Service promised free medical care to the participants. A lie. And the lie continued with the PHS never telling the participants their diagnosis, even though that meant others were at risk of being infected. Those who had it also could go blind, deaf, have mental issues, heart problems, bone problems, central nervous system failures, and possible death. Instead, they were told about having bad blood, linking to many issues like syphilis, anemia, weakness, and tiredness. These diseases were the lead causes of death in African Americans in southern communities at the time. When the study started, all medical books would say to treat the syphilis, because not doing so would end badly. At that time, treatment was arsphenemia, also known as salpharsin. At first, the men were studied for six to eight months, then treated with salpharsin, mercury ointments, and bismuth 
all mildly effective and very toxic. The men were also given placebos and told they were treated for bad blood which also was absolutely nothing. The patients were completely unaware of what was going on. The study was to watch the natural course of the disease untreated. The researchers could have treated them and be done or have a control group for testing penicillin. But they chose to study without treatment and even withheld treatment and information about penicillin from the patients. They also wouldn't allow them to be involved in other programs. The researchers believed strongly the info they were getting from the study would benefit humankind. But years after, it was found they did more harm to the patients by not treating them. This study would be said to be the longest non-therapeutic experiment on human beings in medical history. The victims included men dying of syphilis, 40 wives contracted disease, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. To make sure they got participants to turn up for the horrible, painful, non-therapeutical spinal taps, the doctor sent out time-sensitive letters stating last chance for special free treatment. The first clinical data would be published in 1934, and its first report was published in 1936. These would be before the discovery of penicillin as safe and effective to treat syphilis. Although kept secret to the participants, the medical community were fully aware of the study from reports and data published. World War II broke out and 256 of the infected men wanted to be drafted, so a physical was done and medical which showed syphilis. The men were advised to get treatment if they wanted to join the army services. The PHS researchers wouldn't allow the men to get treated. They would argue the great importance of the study from a scientific standpoint. The men would be asked to be excluded from the list of draftees needing treatment, so the study could continue on an effective basis. It was found that negative patients from the control group were now testing positive when they went to be drafted. Now the negative going to positive weren't stopped getting treatment. They were negative for the study, but becoming positive had them lose their value to the study. By 1947, penicillin became the standard to treat syphilis. The US government would want the disease eradicated and would sponsor many public health programs to achieve this. When these programs got to Macomb County, the researchers would advise the patients not to take part in them. Some of the men would receive arsenical or penicillin treatment in other places but for most, this didn't amount to much help. The study would near its end in 1972. Only 74 of the men would still be alive of the 399 infected. 28 died of syphilis, 100 died of related complications. 40 wives were infected and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. In 1972, Peter Buxton would become a whistleblower, revealing what was going on. This would lead to huge changes in the US law and regulations regarding protecting participants in clinical trials and studies. Studies would now require informed consent, communication of the diagnosis, and accurate reporting of the test results. So back in 1932, the venereal disease section of the US Public Health Service, PHS, 
was formed along with a study group. The goal was to follow untreated syphilis in a group of African-American men for six months to a year and then use treatment. The Rosenwald Fund would sponsor the treatment program but would withdraw the funds as the program was seen to be too expensive. But the study would continue in the interest to see whether syphilis had a different effect on African Americans than it did on whites. A study of untreated syphilis in white males happened in Oslo, Norway and could be used for comparisons. At the time it was believed whites developed neurosyphilis from the disease while African Americans had heart damage from the disease. The doctor who began the study, Talaferro Clark, was also the one to insist to continue, but he left before it was extended again. Clark would be the one blamed for the PHS syphilis study at Tuskegee. A Thomas Parron Jr. would also be involved with a non-treatment study in Macon County. Another involved was Oliver Wagner, who was the director of the regional PHS Venereal Disease Clinic. He, along with his staff, took the lead developing study procedures. He would continue helping when it became a long-term no-treatment study after funding was gone. Raymond Vonderley was appointed to the on-site director of the program and the program and developed the policies to shape the long-term program. He would get patients consent for the spinal taps, painful spinal taps, but by advertising the test as a free special treatment. He also would meet with local African-American doctors and somehow got them to agree to deny treatment to any patients in the Tuskegee study. 1943, he would retire as head of the venereal disease section shortly after penicillin was proven to treat and cure syphilis. We are more obliged to take part in things when those advocating relate to us. Same morals, upbringing, like-minded. So several Amer African-American health workers and educators were recruited and played a crucial role in the study. It is not fully known what exactly they knew about what was going on. Robert Martin, was, who was president of the Tuskegee Institute, and Eugene Dibble, who was head of the John Andrews Memorial Hospital, both would be behind the program. Eunice Rivers, a nurse and African-American, trained at Tuskegee Institute and worked at the hospital. She was made the main point of contact with the patients of the study. Being a nurse, kind and caring, and of the same race, gained the trust of the participants. Miss Rivers Lodge would be set up at Tuskegee University for free physical examinations, free travel to and from the clinic, given free hot meals on exam day and free treatment for any small illnesses. Rivers was key in getting an autopsy agreement from the bereaved families in exchange for funeral benefits. Rivers would become the person to be in constant contact with the patients. She also would be the only staff member of the study to work with the patients for the full 40 years. Several employed by the PHS would express criticism of the study because of it being immoral and poor science practice. The first to actually express his disagreement was Kate Gibson, an associate professor at the Medical College of Virginia. He would bring his concerns to PHS 
in 1955. Another against it was Erwin Scatz, a young doctor in Chicago, 1965. He read an article about the study and he wrote directly to the study very much against it, but the letter was ignored and scrapped. Finally, in 1966, Peter Buxton, a PHS venereal disease investigator, sent a letter to the National Director of the Division of Venereal Disease. In it, he expressed concerns about the ethics and morals of the US PHS syphilis study at Tuskegee. The CDC controlled the subject and they argued to continue until it was completed, meaning all subjects had died and autopsies were done. Buxton decided in the 70s to take this info to the press. The story would break on July 25, 1972 in the Washington Star. Next day, it was front page on the New York Times. Senator Ted Kennedy called congressional hearings. Buxton and Health Education and Welfare, or HUE, officials testified. With the public now aware, outcry came and an advisory panel to review the study was appointed. The panel found the men had somewhat agreed to the experiment, like exams and treatment, but weren't told of the study's actual aim. The panel would find the study medically unjustified and ordered it to stop. Class action lawsuit was filed by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People on behalf of the participants and their descendants. In 1974, as part of the settlement, the US government paid $10 million, or near to $52 million today, and agreed free medical treatment to the survivors and surviving family members infected because of the study. Congress would write of regulations to prevent such abuse happening again. The National Research Act was passed by Congress in 74. They also created a commission to study and write regulations governing studies with human participants. The Office for Human Research Protection was formed and it would oversee clinical trials. From then on, studies would require informed consent, communicating about the diagnosis and giving all results from the tests to the participants. Review boards would review study protocols protect patients' interests and make sure all are fully informed. In 1994, a multidisciplinary meeting was held on the syphilis study at Tuskegee. From this, the parties formed the Tuskegee Syphilis Study Legacy Committee to develop on what came up in the meeting. The committee had two goals, a public apology to the survivors and the community for past government wrongdoing and is also an apology to come from President Bill Clinton. The second goal was to develop a strategy to redress the damages, recommending a public education centre at the Tuskegee University and a centre to study ethics and scientific research. May 16, 1997, Bill Clinton formally apologised and held a ceremony at the White House for the survivors of the Tuskegee study. Five of the eight remaining survivors attended the ceremony. This apology led to the progress in their second goal, national care for bioethics and research and healthcare at the Tuskegee was opened in 1999 and they explored issues that underlie research and medical care of African Americans.
In 2009, the Legacy Museum opened in the Bioethics Centre to honour all the participants of the Tuskegee study. The five survivors who went to the White House ceremony were Charlie Pollard, Herman Shaw, Carter Howard, Fred Simmons and Frederick Moss. The other three sent family members on their behalf. The last man who was part of the study died in 2004. Charlie Parlard would appeal to the civil rights attorney Fred Gray once all came out about the study. Parlard versus US would happen in 73, resulting in a 10 million settlement. Race was one of the reasons for the study, but the main goal was to determine when treatment was needed for syphilis and when in the disease treatment should begin. For that reason, much of the observed were late stage syphilis, but all the reasoning means nothing as it wasn't conducted scientifically. The trials significantly damaged the trust of the black community towards public health. Many believe the abuse of the study may have contributed to the ongoing reluctance of many poor black people to seek care. A survey in 1999 was done and it showed 80% of African American men wrongly believed those in the study were actually injected with syphilis. Distrust from the study also added to rumours during the 80s with the black community. The government were responsible for HIV AIDS crisis by deliberately introducing the virus to the black community. Some African Americans were also reluctant to get their COVID-19 vaccine due to the Tuskegee study. The US Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee heightened issues in race and science. In the period after World War II, with the Holocaust medical abuse coming out, changes in the international law began. The Nuremberg Code, which, cre- which was created to protect the rights of research subjects. In '64, the WHO declared any experiments involving humans needed informed consent from the participants. In spite of those events, the protocols of the study were not changed to meet the new standards. U.S. government officials and medical professionals kept silence and would look away while the study continued until 1972 nearly 30 years after the Nuremberg Code. To this day, no one has been prosecuted for their role in the Tuskegee syphilis study. Thanks for listening. Next time I'll be talking about John Hinckley Jr., who is known for his attempted assassination of US President Ronald Reagan. Until then, this is the good, the bad and the pure evil.